0: Thank you, Mr. and Mrs. Jar. Appreciate your ministry. If I remember correctly, was that one of the songs at your wedding ceremony? Yes. remembered correctly. That was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, worship team, as always. Uh, you do an outstanding job at facilitating our worship of the Lord. Whenever the... Um, You know, there are things in Scripture you get you you read the Bible and you're like, what are they talking about? There's there's things in Scripture that are lofty and hard to follow. But whenever the Scriptures talk about feasting, I'm right there. Like I know that concept. I love food. And so it, it gets my interest. And so when we sang as one of our lyrics this morning that we will feast in endless joy. Because of what Christ has accomplished for us. By dying for our sins. I I, I thought to myself. You mean you can. can, It says feast in endless joy. But the, the picture that came to my mind. Was feasting on joy. And I thought. Maybe in heaven. Like can you imagine taking. We all want to be joyful right. Can you imagine taking a bite of something. And you think wow that's so good. I want more. But then. Tasting the joy of the Lord, taste and see that the Lord is good. Just just taking a mouthful of joy and then more joy in heaven. There will be joy unbounded. We, we will experience so much joy that we will not know what to do with ourselves other than fall on our faces and praise the Prince of Peace. But it was a wonderful, comforting thought and picture for me to have as I worshiped the Lord. Now, I want to switch gears completely. Uh, hopefully, we'll, ha- we'll end in that. But we want to work our way through some scriptural territory this morning um, That that is not always joyful at first. As a matter of fact, sometimes it's extremely painful. But when handled in a godly way, it does result in joy. I just want to open with this quote. I'll explain it later. A few years ago, I was in a bad place, a really bad place. I I don't want to get into it because I don't want to be identified. And at this time. The most comfortable thing about my life. Was a fantasy that I would have. That I would kill myself. And ditch my body. In essence, ridding the world of me. In chapter six, we are in chapter seven of second Corinthians in chapter six, the apostle Paul exhorted the Corinthian church, the saints, the brothers and sisters in Christ to not be unequally yoked. And in that passage, we saw that there are times things are complicated, but there are times when. We have to get back to the basics, and that is there is such a thing as light and dark, and they don't mix. There's such a thing as the true God and idols, and they don't mix. And evil and good, and they don't mix. And so there comes times where we have to just call things and see things for what they are. And there's evil in the world. There's false teaching in the world. There's false worship in this world. And as believers who believe in the true God, we have to... Uh, Sometimes remove ourselves from those things or remove those things for from ourselves So if they came into our church, we would want to remove those things from us But if we were in another place where evil and darkness was present We would want to move remove ourselves from those kind of things. They do not uh, line up in any way with What God is about they're the exact opposite. So we don't want to go in that direction And we don't want to be yoked or harnessed to darkness if we're light because we go in opposite directions. You can't work together. It's a mess. It's dishonoring to the Lord. So don't be unequally yoked. Otherwise, if we remain equally yoked, then we can be complicit, complicit in the evil or complicit in the darkness. And what happens when we are complicit in evil or darkness. That's what we're going to talk about this morning in chapter 7. As the Apostle Paul enters into some new territory. But what happens when we find ourselves entering into and engaging into evil or sin or darkness is that we experience guilt. So otherwise we will be in guilt because we will dishonor the Lord and disobey God by walking on the wrong path that that dishonors him. And so we will have that sensation, that feeling, that reality of guiltiness. So just like in our criminal justice system, if you've committed a crime, you go before the judge and you will be given some kind of sentence if you're guilty you will be given some kind of sentence. And so in a spiritual realm with God as the ultimate sovereign judge, when we break his law, we also, in a sense, are guilty for breaking that law. And we are ushered a sentence, a penalty. Now, we know that the wages of sin, according to God, is death. That's a pretty stark penalty there. That's how holy God is. That's how terrible it is for us to sin against God because one sin against him is so terrible because he is so great that we're worthy of death it's no question so we we see that we will eventually experience physical death and that's part of the punishment is physical death we're all going to die you can exercise and eat healthy you 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 can say what is it 50 is the new 70 or whatever. Uh, We we can come up with all these great positive thinking things and really take good care of ourselves. But we're going to die. We don't always know how we're going to die, but we're going to die. That's not to say we shouldn't take care of ourselves, but it's just physical death because we've sinned against God. But there's also the spiritual death. And it's the severing of the relationship of God. God is this glorious, uh, this, this being of light and goodness and joy and peace and we're severed from him because he's holy and now we're sinful and so that life source that we would soak up and feel the vibrancy of what it even means to be alive is cut off from us that friendship that relationship that fellowship or as Adam and Eve did walking in the cool of the day with God how cool pun intended would that be so it's, it's this healthy, holy relationship, and we are severed from it. See, guilt is a built-in consequence, the feeling of, of not feeling right, something's off. It's a built-in consequence of, of cosmic treason, if you will. It's a, it's a built-in consequence of going against the goodness of God's design. And guilt, in that sense, is a good thing. We, we should not feel good about things that aren't good. So we have this, we're, we're created with this because we're created in the image of God. And there is such a thing as right and, and holiness and righteousness. When we transgress that, we don't feel right. Something's off. Believer and unbeliever alike. You don't have to be a believer to feel guilt. Everybody in the world feels some kind of sensation or experience, external, internal of guilt. And it's, it's a feeling of being off. You know, it's almost like a, a spiritual nausea, if you will. If you, if you just don't feel right in the day, you wake up feeling bad, you, you don't really look forward to going to work, you don't look forward to going to school, or whatever you had on your calendar that day, it's just off. And everything is off because you don't feel right. And it's the same with thing with spiritual guilt. It's it's a sickness. It's it's a pain. So, in a universe that's designed down to the tiniest particle to glorify its creator, it just makes sense that we would not. It would not feel good to do bad. It, it makes sense that that we we would not feel healthy if, in fact, we're actually. Dying. Or to experience joy by betraying joy itself. In today's passage, we get a little example of a church that uh, stood in guilt for violation. They were confronted. I'll just give you the little synopsis of it. We'll read it in a bit. But uh, the Apostle Paul confronts the Corinthians about something that they did wrong. And he writes a letter and he confronts them and he's on pins and needles because he's not sure how they're going to take it. Turns out they take it well, they repent and their relationship is restored. That's our passage in a nutshell. But he talks about guilt. He talks about grief. He talks about the pain. It was painful for them to sin, but it was also painful for them to be confronted. So there's a lot of talk about grief in here. So I'm, I'm reading this passage. I'm trying to get my head into this passage when I was preparing it. And I start thinking about guilt, my own guilt, and how grateful I am that I was able to take all of my guilt and lay it at the feet of, of Christ. And it's not like this for everybody. But when I got saved, I was I was a sinner. Right? I'm just not going to beat around the bush. I did bad things. So when I got saved, I felt the weight and the burden of my sin. When I got saved, it was an experience where it literally felt like I was lighter. Like if I would have stood on the scales, I would have been this much higher than the scales. Uh, It was that experience like we sing about in the hymns. So I was thinking about this passage, and then the thought came to me, what do you do in life with your guilt if you don't even believe in God? Like, where do you take it? What do you do with all that pain? Like, I know what to do with it today. I know that there's forgiveness in Christ. But what about all the people in the world that don't have that or don't even believe in God? So I just quickly Googled, uh, "What do you do if you're an ath- What do you do with your guilt if you're an atheist?" Because I wanted to understand. It's got to be a terrible, terrible thing. And um, I want to share two things that I found on the internet with you that people struggle with, and these are atheists. Because you know, I wondered how it, how it all worked. And I googled, how, to, how do atheists find forgiveness? And there were lots of articles, of course, for the sake of time, I just, I'm going to share two. And I, I want to share these for, for two reasons. One is, so to awaken a sense of compassion. It, we've been forgiven. But there are those like we used to be that are not. And to not be forgiven is to live with that constant sense of guilt and unforgiveness. That, that, that spiritual nausea, if you will. And, and I hope that it will open our eyes to have compassion for the lost. And to to increase our gratitude To God for opening our eyes for our need of forgiveness and showing us the path to attain that. So here's a portion of one of the articles. And this atheist asks, how do atheists handle extreme guilt without a God to forgive them? And So this is the this is what I quoted you. It's how the article starts. It's what I quoted you for my introduction. A few years ago, I was in a bad place, a really bad place. And I don't want to get into it because I don't want to be identified. And at this time, the most comfortable thing about my life was a fantasy that I would kill myself and ditch my body in essence. So the world will be rid of me. And I'm editing this, by the way. I've since then, I've gotten much better. I'm actually a completely different person in every way. And I can't believe that I was once the way that I was. But I still have to deal with the guilt. So he changed his behavior and it made him feel better. Life was better. He's no longer suicidal. But he still has the guilt of the transgression, whatever it was. He says, I'm a male in my 20s and I'm not a very emotional person. And you wouldn't know it from talking to me. But I often cry violently. When thinking about the horrible thing that I've done, I can't escape it. I I know and I've demonstrated that I'm a completely changed person, but I can't escape the guilt. There's also absolutely no way to make it better. One of the only religious notions that I can respect is the idea of forgiveness. I know what it feels like to truly repent, and it is the absolute worst feeling in the world. I'm an atheist, though. I don't believe that there is any God out there to forgive me. I am accountable for my actions. This guilt, I feel, is overwhelming. It's been years, and I still feel it powerfully. It's so hard to live with, and I can't think of any way to fix what I've done. That was on the True Atheism website, and that's cut and pasted into my material here. So this this is real. This this is our world. This is humanity. And he had done something terrible and it's plagued him. He, he managed to change his behavior, which made life better. And he saw hope. But what do you do with what the past like the present change didn't erase the past? And he doesn't know how to deal with that. I mean, years has, have gone by and it is so bad that at night he sometimes violently cries. He's in a puddle of tears. Because of his actions. And he wants to apparently feel clean. He wants to get over it. He wants it to be behind him. But he doesn't know how to make that happen. And he can't go to God. Because he doesn't believe in God. Uh, By the way. The advice given. To him. See a psychologist. Get help. And you are not alone. So he what you see is a person that doesn't believe in God, but they have a a very keen sense of righteousness and good and evil because very aware I have done something really evil, so evil that it would probably be a good, righteous thing for me to kill myself so that I rid the world of my evil. Those are human feelings. But he doesn't know how to get past those. Even though just changing his life and his behavior did not cure him of the past evil. It just helped the present. So he's suffering. He's tormented in his guilt. So here's a second article. And actually I had to type this one. The site must be protected or something because I had to type this into the computer. It was extra work. But this is on a friendly atheist website. Dear Richard, how do atheists resolve themselves from guilt? As a non-believer, what can I do to resolve myself of guilt? It seriously keeps me up at night sometimes. Do you see a little pattern there? Something you can't get rid of, right? And when you're in your alone time and you don't have the distractions of the world and responsibilities, there, there it is right before you. So I'm paraphrasing this for sake of time. This person doesn't say how, but she had highly offended an individual and did some soul-searching and had grown very uncomfortable with her bad behavior. And the more she thought about it, the more she saw her fault, was willing to take full responsibility over it, but she had no way to contact the other person. So what does she do now? She used to be Catholic, she explains. And she would go to a confession and confess her sin to a priest who would offer her absolution and give her penance, which usually would be a number of prayers or things to do for your sins. And then God forgives, and hopefully anyone else uh, involved, if they're present, would forgive too. But she wants to know, what do I do now that I'm an atheist? How does this work? So here's the advice. Again, it's paraphrased. Admit your wrongdoing, your moral failure, and the pain it caused... Offer an apology with no excuses. Make amends. If possible, never do it again. In other words, change your behavior. As for your former religious experience, what actually happened to enable you to feel good about yourself again? Well, you forgave yourself. There is no God. Just You just thought there was. And what actually happened is you were able to forgive yourself. Now, the church gave you permission to forgive yourself. The church's perverted beliefs produce chronic guilt and shame, teaching that you are born in guilt and are in constant need of forgiveness from God. You do not need the forgiveness or stamp of approval from a God who is not there. You need to meet your own expectations and offer yourself forgiveness in order to free yourself from the guilt of your own conscience to make sure you're not being too easy on yourself. And he gives an example And basically says, treat others as you would like to be treated. I think I've read that somewhere before. Uh, And then um, set your standard and keep it with how you treat others and then use that same standard on yourself. In fact, this is what you have always done for yourself. You just wrongly accredited to another source, the church. Don't worry, it's okay. You are a highly moral person and you will self-correct yourself To be even a better person, I wish you days of fruitful effort and nights of well deserved rest. So that was the advice that Richard gave this person. What advice would you have given if someone comes to you with these kind of problems in life, a co worker, or a friend, or a student at school? Do you have a worldview that's big enough to handle this kind of sense of dread and and guilt? So atheism doesn't. Atheism says you are accountable only to yourself. Yes, you committed the sin, but you're also the judge of your own sin and the judge over your own conscience, so give yourself a break. Just change and don't do it again. Because you've acknowledged that it's wrong. But and in, in essence, the, the sinner is the judge that's executing the sentence of forgiveness on itself. And it doesn't really work in real life. Otherwise, this is just two examples. And boy, you just, they're, they're everywhere. They're not hard to find. And it's sad. I had to stop reading them for sake of time. So we're like the sinner, we're the criminal, but we're also the judge uh, that we set the price that's supposed to set us free. Uh, maybe we give ourselves work to do or we change our behavior. But answering to ourselves doesn't work because we're not the highest authority. See, that's the, the problem is that because the, we were created in the image of God and we have a sense and a knowing of God, it's there and we can't get rid of it. We have to really, really stifle it and suppress it. We kind of know that forgiving ourselves just doesn't carry it far enough where really these people are are, they're crying out for a higher power. They're crying out for a a larger authority and, and bigger sense of approval for somebody that can really release them for what they've done in their life. But they won't allow themselves to reach out to this God because they don't they no longer believe in this God. So they're stuck. They're stuck in a closed world. Well, there's no way to get rid of the moral filth. That a a, a forgiveness one to another is very liberating and freeing, but we've also offended a holy God. See, that's what they're sensing. They've offended a holy God and they can't get free of that because they will not permit themselves to go to this holy God and say, I have sinned against you and you alone have I sinned against So with that idea of compassion for those that don't understand the forgiveness of God and gratitude for those that do, let's read our passage this morning. It's not as dismal, by the way. 2 Corinthians 7, 2 through 16. The Apostle Paul says, Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, But because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what earnestness to clear yourselves What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment? At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So, although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted, and besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all. How you received him with fear and trembling, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. So the Apostle Paul is just, overwhelmed with joys beside himself with joy because of the kingdom progress that was made with the corinthian church it could have gone either way so this isn't his first letter you know that we've talked about this in our introduction to corinthians that several letters were written matter of fact it's believed that five letters were written we don't have them all they didn't all make it into the canon but the apostle was in in um communications correlation with The churches, they were writing letters back and forth because he was only one person. He couldn't be everywhere at one time. And so they'd write him questions and what do I do about this and help me understand this issue before God. And we got this problem and they were in correspondence. So he'd written a letter to them regarding something that had gone wrong. And you might recall that there were false teachers that had infiltrated the church and they were. Uh, They were saying bad things about the apostle. They were questioning his authority. Who are you to to stand on the podium and speak with such authority for for God? And what kind of leader are you? Where are your credentials? I don't see your credentials and you're just in it for the money or you're just in it for selfish gain and pride and prestige. And so these teachers came in and made these kind of accusations. And unfortunately, the Corinthians began to believe them. And Paul wasn't there to defend himself. They began to believe it and it set seeds of doubt. What if this is true? And their allegiance and loyalty to the apostle Paul was threatened. It was compromised. And they and they disrespected Paul. They doubted Paul. They had forgotten the person that he was when they were face to face. That's one of the reasons the apostle Paul is constantly that he defends himself. He vindicates himself. he reminds them, look, when I was with you, you couldn't find any fault in me. So where are all these faults now? Who's making these things up? In this passage, it's likely that Paul's the one who suffered because now he is broken off or severed from this relationship. They don't trust him anymore. They don't look to him as the authority speaking into their lives. So he's the one very likely that He's suffering the disrespect here. And he calls for repentance. He sends this letter and he calls for repentance on their part. I'm not a charlatan. I've done nothing wrong. I didn't ask for any money from you. Just think about all these accusations and you will know that they are not true. I just have the sincerest love for you and everything I've ever done was for your own well-being, even at my own expense which is how ministry often transpires, by the way. Sometimes the most powerful ministry that transpires is at your own expense as you minister to others. But there's something here I want to just pick out before moving forward. And it requires tremendous selflessness and I would say Christian maturity, this kind of view. And in verse 12, he says, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. So they lost their respect. They weren't excited about him and his teaching and and, and the, the things of the kingdom anymore. And Paul, the reason that he is overjoyed with enthusiasm in this letter is because now they respect him again and they trust him again. So what's the big deal about that? He's excited, not so much for himself. Sure, he justifies himself. He vindicates himself because those are false accusations. But there's an even higher purpose that he ministers at his own expense and why he is so incredibly enthusiastic. And it's because now they trust him again. So what's the big deal about that? Well, he speaks for God. He, he, he's a He's God's spokesperson. He knows God. He understands the word of God. He's a servant of God, right? He's a clay pot. And he'll do whatever God requires of him. And what God is requiring of him is to spread God's word, to be the voice of God, to share the good news. And if they cut him off, they're cutting themselves off from God's voice. And he's he's terrified at that thought. It's not just about, okay, you slandered me. That's hard enough. But if you turn against me the threat is then who are you listening to if you're not listening to the voice of god and he's just ecstatic that he has won their zeal and their trust and their earnestness and that they want to be rightly related to him and really restore him to that place of authority but that's something that we need to think about in a church because when you when you when somebody uh, when a church or a leader or a pastor or what ministry of Person in any kind of capacity loses trust or falls prey to these accusations because they really have sin, and people walk away from the church. There's a sense in which they're walking away from the voice of God and the people of God. And the big threat is: okay, if you're walking away from from this voice, what voice are you walking into? Because if you're if you're cutting your, you've had your feelings hurt, or 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 you're just. Being rebellious yourself. And it's not the church's fault. You just have a bad attitude. You got grumpy pants or whatever. You you get out from under the voice of God. Which shows you the path and the light and the way of life. Then what voice are you under? Because we're always listening to something. We need help in life. We all know that. We go to countless places for advice. Whether it's a recipe. How to cook something. Or whether it's a recipe of life. What do I do with my guilt? People are Pouring their hearts out online to get answers. And so the Apostle Paul is threatening: If you're not listening to the Word of God, then what are you listening to? We live in, surprise, the info age. Have you had enough information come across your desk yet? Whew, so many articles and so much access. I mean, I don't, your phones, you can carry it with you and it's good and it's bad it's great. It's great that we have the technology to have access to so many things, so many different views. But it also means that a lot of the access and a lot of things out there are bad and they're harmful. They're not good advice. They could be false. It could be false worldviews. They could just be bad advice. But it also means that there's a lot of good advice out there. That what's, what's the problem now is that We're so inundated with all of these juicy, the clickbait and the juicy articles and things that we are passing over because we can't read them all. We're passing over really good things. We're passing over perhaps that article that we really needed to read. There's just so many things that are out there. That not only do we reject the bad, but now we can be. Ignoring the good. So it's more avail- available, but less valuable, the information. It's like, it's like inflation. It's just too much of it out there. And so we're not paying as much attention to it as we did when it was novel. And we're in the age where everybody's talking, but nobody's listening. So that's that's our problem. But I think as believers, even not just as leaders, we, you know, Scripture sets up qualifications for leadership. There needs to be trust. But also on uh, your level, I mean, in our family, in our relationships, in our home, this level of trust, because we are God's spokespersons. We, we have the truth. We read his word. We might have the very scripture or truth that our friend needs or somebody that comes to us with a broken heart or can't sleep at night because of guilt. So you see, if, if you're not putting yourself under the voice of God with the people of God, then what are you under? What advice are you getting? See, that threatens me, especially as a pastor. When I realize all the voices are out there, I read the stuff, too. And man, some of it, I just can't even believe what people write. It's just trash. So if we're not listening to the voice of God, trusting in God, then what are we listening to? We need to maybe redial in or recommit ourselves to the loyalty and the veracity, the infallibility of God's word. It's true. It's pure. It's not defiled. It's not. It hasn't been touched 3000 different times by other opinions by the time you read it. It's right here. It's the voice of God. Of God, And there's this zealousness that has been regained by the Corinthians. They're excited about it now. They're excited to hear from Paul. And there needs to be an excitement amongst ourselves that as we come together and God's word is read, whether it's down there or up here, we are hearing the voice of God. We are getting truth as pure as it can be. As good as it gets. And it applies to our lives. It is something that we can take. And if we're obedient. We can get a lot of mileage. Out of every one of God's. Principles. An eagerness. A zeal for the things of the kingdom. Because if our zeal is not for the things of the kingdom. Then what is it for? So Paul is beside himself. With joy over their response and their repentance. And secondly, we talk about the guilt and I've entitled it good grief because that's kind of what the Apostle Paul calls it. Even if I made you grieve with my letter, I did not regret it, though I did regret it. What did he regret? For I see that that letter grieved you though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, so, in other words, it's not the pain. I'm not, oh, man, I just pictured you writhing in pain. And it was so wonderful to watch you cry. And so that, that that was not the kind of pain. But what he's excited about is that I'm basically, I'm sorry that you had to be pained, but you had to be pained. Because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief. So that you suffered no loss through us. So why is it a good grief? You know, in this broken and cursed world, as much as we hate it and we do things to avoid it, and rightly so, pain plays an important role. Uh, C.S. Lewis called pain God's megaphone. Pain is important. And it reminds us that things aren't right, that things are off, that the world's broken and we're broken. We're a part of it. And in God's kingdom, pain is used to show us, uh, you know, you you get little warnings like you're getting you're getting too close to that stove. And if you get any closer, it's not just going to be a little discomfort, but you're going to have a scar or third degree burns. And there's constant warnings in scripture and pain does that in the inside and the out. God speaks to our hearts. He's the infinite one. And where it can be pain in and of itself, see, in the kingdom of God, it has an end. It has a goal and a purpose. And that's what he would call godly grief because it resulted in a move towards God. It ended in a fruitful way. And so it was great. You're, they were already grieved over their own sin. They had already violated their trust. And stepped away from the voice of God in that sense. And so they were guilty on their own. But that pain from Paul's letter, and I don't know what he told them, but it worked. Uh, That pain showed them that they fell short of God's standard. That they fell prey to false teaching. They fell prey and believed false accusations. They were gullible. They were wrong because Paul proved in real life the kind of person he was. So God's standard revealed their hearts. It caused grief and then it caused them to get back to God's standard. To repent, to ask forgiveness, and to readjust their behavior. Now see, they changed their behavior. Now there's zeals for Paul, but they also put the sin in the past. They repented of it and trusted Christ to forgive them for that. So they made amends with the Apostle Paul. He was still there. He's still living. It was possible to get that relationship right. But they know that the the sin in the past can be forgiven by the God that they have offended. And so now the book is more about joy than it is about grief. Because that's the end result. And when we repent, it's a joyous thing. Somebody is not happy back in the nursery. Who is it? Okay. Bless them, Lord. If they're hungry, give them food. Dirty diaper, change it. it, Whatever it is. Okay, totally lost my place there. So. uh, So it's it's important to see how this works. So their grief came by. The repentance came by. The grief came because they've sinned, and the repentance came by comparing their behavior to God's standard. They saw they were off, they wanted back on, and they left that change of behavior and were forgiven for that. Now, it's important that we know that uh, not all feelings of guilt are godly feelings. Like, the, the poor these poor people that we read about that don't believe in God... They had the same kind of pain. It was terrible. It was excruciating. But it wasn't one that led to repentance. So it wasn't a a godly grief. In other words, it's a grief according to God that goes along with God, that plays into God's plan for our lives. There's also a worldly grief. And there's a big difference between a godly grief and a worldly grief in the end. See, guilt... What do you do with your guilt without a God to forgive you? Just feeling guilty about doing something wrong is not a virtuous thing in and of itself. I feel guilty. Great. It's real, but it's not a thing of virtue. It's not according to God. What's it according to the world or according to man? Here's the thing. We all feel bad when we do things wrong. It's a real pain. But the the guilt, according to man, works more like this. And we read this in these letters. I feel bad. I feel terrible and I want to feel good again. And I change my behavior and I feel better, but I still don't feel good and I want to feel good. What does it take for me to get out from under this burden and this this bad feeling? See, the problem with that is it's all about my feelings. And what is lacking there and why they're still left in their sins is because they fail to acknowledge that their sin offended a holy God. And that not only did they grieve their own conscience and heart, they grieved the heart of a holy God. That he is offended, that his wrath is breathing down their necks. That's That's what we feel when we transgress, is God's wrath breathing down our necks. So if it's just about me feeling right... I'll have to do all kinds of things, whatever it takes to get me to feel right, but that doesn't erase it. A godly grief is one that realizes I have grieved God. I have transgressed His law. In other words, it's about Him more than it's about us. The psalmist's repentance was, I have sinned against you and you only. That's not true. He sinned against people. I think that was David's confession of Bathsheba, adultery and murder of Uriah. But the bottom line is I sinned against you and you only. You see all. You're the one that came up with laws and I transgressed them. I've grieved your heart. And if there's one thing important in this life, it is to honor you, to worship you, to love you with my actions, not walk in darkness and go exactly against everything that you stand for. That's the godly grief. When we see how it affects God. It's not just about us. And when God is not in our lives like he should be. And it becomes just about us. Then that's when we get stuck. Because we don't care that God has been demeaned. We only care about I just want to feel good again. And changing our behavior alone will not do it. Because it has nothing to do with God's righteousness. It's about our own righteousness. Righteousness. And our own standard that we set for ourselves. How can grief be good? John Piper says in a world where you can bleed to death. It's good to feel pain when you're cut. It's good to feel pain before the tumor is inoperable. It's good to feel pain before the infection leads to gangrene. Godly regret is to sin what pain is to disease and that's the kind of pain we want because it's the pain that says you need to do something different it's not working for you and what you need to do different is to live for creator God what we don't want is the false guilt we don't want to be stuck in that feeling. So how does Satan work behind this? Satan tempts us to just continue to feel guilty even if we've confessed to Christ. Has that ever happened? See, God's truth says if we confess our sins, he is righteous and faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when we do that with a sincere heart, We have obeyed the Lord and he has forgiven us. And then the temptation usually comes in our door of pride is uh, you're not forgiven. And we find ourselves living miserably when God indeed has set us free. And our emotions are not in line with the reality, the judicial reality that has taken place in the high court of heaven. You know, our society often tells us our secular society, th- th- there's this uh, it's an assault, really. It's an assault against the Christian faith. because the Christian faith today is often looked at as chains of bondage. As was written in one of these letters, is all we do is talk a lot about sin and sin nature. And then you have a Bible that is filled with stipulations and principles and commandments. And so the idea or the belief is that if we can sever ourselves or cut that away and get rid of all that, we'll get rid of our guilt. We'll get rid of our shame. It's not working. It's not working and it will not work because here's what happens. In real life, though it might sound great, wow, if I don't have anybody I've got to be accountable to, then I can just do anything, get away with it, feel good about it. It doesn't work because what we do is we trade our allegiance of approval from wanting to please God to pleasing man you got to please somebody because we're communal creatures and so now without God there who are we trying I'm crying at these people are crying out for answers from their fellow man somebody tell me that I'm forgiven somebody tell me do something in me fix me my fellow man but we can't fix each other on that level only God can do that. And what happens is we look at God's ten commandments and we say they're too heavy for us and then we look at the approval of man man and his tens of thousands of commandments. See, man, we're more strict on each other than God is on us. Think of the cancel culture. Where's the forgiveness? Where's the look at look at the divisiveness in our culture today. Look how many loops you have to jump. Look what you have to believe and what you can't believe in order to be approved or accepted by this group or that group. It is way more torturous to find man's approval than God's approval because of the mercy and the work of Jesus Christ. So the pain is calling out to us showing us which way to turn. And that pain and that guilt is to point us to the way of salvation for the glory of God. So let's just close with a few uh, uh, principles of application. So first, if we have this guilt, we want to make sure it's a godly guilt. We want to make sure it's according to God's word and God's standard and not something that man came up with. Because there's so many things out there in our shame culture that are standards of man that you're supposed to attain to in order to be approved. Make sure that it is from God. Make sure that it is calling us to produce that change according to God. And what sin took away from the Corinthians, the Holy Spirit through repentance restored to them and their relationship is Restored, so make it about honoring God. Make sure that it comes from transgressing God's standards and not man's. And then, secondly, uh, look for the godly correction. Now, notice what happened here. Sometimes we have to receive it, and I'll close with this. Sometimes we have to receive it, and sometimes we have to give it as believers. The Apostle Paul saw the sin and he saw the need to give correction. It was confrontation. They've received it. And in our lives, there will be times where God calls us to give it. You go to your brother, get the plank out of your own eye, prepare your heart, do all the necessary work. But go and correct that, confront that. It's a Christian thing to do. It's not easy. You might be ridiculed. You might be rejected. But it's the right. Paul was on pins and needles. That tough guy. What are they going to do with this? Which way is it going to go? Sometimes we need to give it. But also we need to have hearts to receive it. We don't always know when it's coming. So we want to, before God in the light of God, be willing to serve him in that way. Giving and receiving biblical correction. Go easy, but go. May God bless the preaching of his word.